Hello, and welcome to Talking and Chill, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. And Zahava Stadler in northern New Jersey. Hi, Zahava. Hey. This month on the podcast, we're talking about Me Too in the Jewish world. Major Jewish figures in the Jewish world have been implicated by the movement, including the demographer or social scientist Stephen M. Cohen, philosopher Avital Ronell, and Jewish funders on a larger and smaller scale. We're going to talk about what we think and hope implications might be for the future and what the fallout is looking like right now. And for our second segment, we're talking about Spike Lee's new film, Black Klansmen, which follows a black detective in Colorado Springs as he and a Jewish colleague infiltrate the local chapter of the KKK. So we got a lot to talk about. I'm really excited. For our first segment, um, we're talking about the Me Too movement, which has been kicked off more than 10 months ago. Um, and it's unearthed sexual harassment basically everywhere. Um, and the Jewish community has started to wrestle with some of the harassment that has been found in the Jewish community. And I mean, sexual harassment, I feel like is like the, the common denominator, but there's all kinds of other things like sexual impropriety and, um, pay differences in pay between men and women, um, just kind of really issues around sex and gender in the workplace. And the most recent and arguably the biggest story um, in the Jewish community has been about Stephen M. Cohen, a demographer who's known for his research about the effects of intermarriage and is known for saying that Jewish women should have more children. And it turns out that he was acting inappropriately, um, primarily with grad students. So what does, what are are our takeaways? What, What does it mean what is our kind of big overarching takeaways? And then I'm also really interested in what you all think about should happen to people who have been implicated in these um, situations. So (laughs) who wants to go first? Well, my initial reaction to a lot of this, and mm, I'm I'm welcoming you guys um, setting me straight here, is that I'm not sure how to think of these stories as Jewish community stories. Um, They don't seem that distinct from any other stories. Um, So the Stephen Cohen stories seem to be about the way power dynamics lead uh, to a vulnerability to abuse. So if you're a leader in any academic field, Judaic studies or, you know, Chinese poetry or microbiology, there's there's a lot of power that you wield um, in young up-and-coming scholars in the field in terms of helping them publish and um, mentoring them and being graduate advisors and things like that. And it becomes uh, the and becomes a power imbalance that's very, very open to abuse, which he seems to have taken advantage of. Um, the, you know, uh, the other stories that we're hearing, to me, they say a little bit less about a unique dynamic of abuse in the, in the Jewish community, a unique form of ab- abuse in the Jewish community, than they do about the Jewish community simply not being exempt. Um, you know, it's, it happens here too, um, but I have not gotten a strong sense of the the distinctly Jewish version of this problem. And oh so yeah, I'm sorry. I don't think that there is a distinctly Jewish version of this problem. 
Um, but I do think that some of the things that we have seen come up are, um, are, it's not just like, oh, there's also sexual harassment and abusive power in the Jewish world. It's like with Stephen M. Cohen, it sounds like not only it sounds like he was among other things really diminishing the work of some of his grad students who had ideas that was borne out with research that were contradictory to his own and you know he his job is basically to like do studies on Jewish people and then explain what the results mean but he also kind of transitioned into um making his own policy recommendations. So if if he was doing that and also abusing his power and essentially trying to make it so that the people who were working under him were not able to have their results taken seriously and they were perhaps had right ideas, then we've actually, I mean, I think there are lots of people who are very concerned that we've just been kind of like steering Jewish communities based on these ideas that he had, which may not actually have been based in as much as he said that they were. And that those those policies and ideas had real effects on people's lives. Sorry, Mimi, you've been trying to talk. No, I so we read an article that we'll include in the show notes, um, how Jewish academia created a Me Too monster and Oh, sorry, Me Too disaster, though monster is also fair. Um, and in that article, three female Jewish um, professors, right? I think they're all professors, talk about, they, they link Cohen's behavior towards his grad students and employees with his research or with his with the with the, with the results of his research he says um and i guess i i want to like dive a little bit deeper into that because when i read the stories initially from the women from from i think it was eight women who came forward um i didn't jump to the connection between his use of power over them and the work that he's done. And I'm just wondering, tomorrow if you can like say a little bit more about where you see that connection. Well, it sounds like f- their take on it from from the articles that we read is basically that um, they many of them did research on intermarriage, which is like one of his big bugaboos. And what they found was that a Jewish man who marries a non-Jewish woman still often ends up having children with a, a decent amount of Jewish practice in their lives. That's my, I mean, I haven't like read any of these studies, but that was my understanding of the research. And Stephen M. Cohen's kind of whole, the thing that he based so much of his ideas on was this idea that like intermarriage is bad, more Jewish babies are good, day school is the only effective way to really educate Jews, second would be Jewish camp. Right. Um, and so... <clears throat> These women who were, I think, very often intimidated and not taken seriously because of because of, of how he treated them, their work was not taken seriously either, even though, you know, 
my understanding, at least, is that they had the research to back up what they were saying. Um, and he was just kind of a macher, and so he was taken more seriously. And then... And, sorry, go ahead. Well, and then Jane Eisner, um, editor of The Forward, talks about how she was sort of, like, she's a close friend of Stephen M. Cohen's, but she talks about grappling with now understanding how the Jewish media has let Stephen M. Cohen be the Jewish demographer that they all turn to for the quotes mm-hmm. whenever needed. Um, right. Whenever there's something about Jewish continuity or demographic shifts or whatever, that they would turn to this one man um, who wielded power and maybe silenced, and it sounds like silenced voices of others. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting. So I before this story was not familiar with the name Stephen M. Cohen. And it could just be because it's a really generic Jewish man name. Um, but reading I think about he just oh, sidebar, he has to go by Stephen M. Cohen, because there's some other very famous Stephen Cohen. I don't know who it is. But <laughs> if you Google, like, he had to go by Stephen M. Cohen. Anyway, <laughs> Well, the name did not ring any bells for me. But when I read the articles about his work, I immediately recognized the ideas that he's associated with as things that had been very influential in the Jewish world, right? This emphasis on Jewish continuity, that the notion of that Jewish continuity is being incompatible with intermarriage, um, and specifically uh, this matrilineal descent emphasis that really focuses on whether or not kids have Jewish mothers. But I also recognized those ideas. It seemed to me like if that's coming out of his sociological work, then that's deeply influenced by this very traditional understanding within Judaism about what constitutes a Jewish family um, and that kind of that kind of old school understanding. Um, and it doesn't actually surprise me that a Jewish establishment like like you know, an entity like the forward or things that are that are part of a pretty longstanding Jewish establishment might have a an affinity for somebody who's espousing a, a less vanguardy understanding of the Jewish family that it feels recognizable and affirming. But I I was wondering whether the um, the theory advanced in that article, right, how Jewish academia created a Me Too disaster, whether that I bought the theory, meaning I understand a feminist critique of Stephen Cohen's research as placing the burden for continuity on women in the form of policing women's bodies and their marital and reproductive choices. I'm I'm not sure that I understand that necessarily as related to harassment and assault between people. And it made me reflect, so let's say you hear um, conservative anti-abortion politician uh, paid for mistress's abortion at some point 15 years ago and you would roll your eyes at the hypocrisy and you would also lament the fact that that person was in a position to make policy about other women's choices. Um, is this analogous? Um, you know, this this person who had these, uh, you know, egregious, um, egregious uh, power dynamic abuses that um, that manifested in sexual assault and harassment is it analogous that this person was regrettably in a position to influence policy, you know, sort of public perception about the Jewish future? It feels a little more tenuous to me. Yeah, I agree. I think it is a little more tenuous, <clears throat> but I think it's 
it's a little more tenuous. It's not a lot more tenuous. Like he, he isn't there. Nobody gets to make laws for the Jewish people at this point. So, um, so it's not the same as like a legislator who might like actually cast a vote for a law that would make it so that a woman wouldn't have access to an abortion. But I think he was really influential in pushing forward, um, policies and ideas that have had real impact on people's lives. In particular, I've talked to women who um, converted who felt like there's just a lot of animosity um, towards them in the Jewish world that they think really stems from a lot of um, of the ideas that um, Stephen M. Cohen hmm. um, represented. It, it's hard. I think that there's like and I also think that like what ultimately what we're talking about is um an abuse of power and a power dynamic that is really um out of whack and that that can can just cause problems in a lot of different ways like it can cause um people to do things sexually that are like inappropriate that like really are terrible for other people's lives, but it can also just it can also be not a sexual thing, just a professional thing that makes you, uh, puts you in a bad situation. The, um, the professor at NYU, um, who, a, a woman who is accused, um, of sexually harassing her students, like she's a woman and queer and he is a man and queer, but and there was like uh it sounds like she a lot of her emails to him were like really sexually inappropriate but it doesn't seem like they actually had a sexual relationship or even that that's really what it was about it's just that she had a huge amount of power over him and she was lording it over him in really like inappropriate um and upsetting ways and i think that you know there is a spectrum from something like rabbi Freundel, who was you know spying on women and really using his power over potential converts to do really terrible things to an academic who like doesn't take seriously the work of one of their students though the, I don't think those are the same thing but I do think that they're on a spectrum and it's a spectrum that it seems like this is kind of the year where we've seen it for the first time and I think that part of the problem is that like because it is on on one spectrum it's things are being kind of lumped together and and I you know I think that like they're all (laughs) these things are all bad I don't want to make it seem like "Eh, it's not a big deal or whatever but it's like there is a difference (laughs) between like a rabbi sleeping with a congregant and um a professor like being rude or sexually harassing a student, those things are different. They're both inappropriate. They shouldn't happen. The people responsible should be held responsible. And I, that's kind of the next thing I want to talk about. But like, I don't think they're the same. And I think that like, I'm very glad that the Me Too movement happened, but I also do think that it's like kind of a shame that so much is being lumped under Me Too because they just they're different. They they have different effects. And you know, sometimes it's like one person gets sexually harassed constantly every day for years. But ultimately like it's limited to that one person. And and sometimes it's like it's a bunch of people, 
a little bit, but it has the effect of a lot of ideas like don't come forward because a bunch of people just get kind of like a not good feeling and aren't really taken seriously. That's, you know, I I don't think we need to have a like what's worse conversation, but I think that like they're all bad differently. Before we get into um, what maybe should happen, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on kind of how these stories have come out in the Jewish media and how they've been discussed in Jewish circles. Like, has that been surprising or upsetting or, you know, anything like that to either of you? Um, the story that initially came out about Stephen M. Cohen quoted the the first woman interviewed was somebody who I don't know well, but have an, I'm an acquaintance with. And um, I, I think in part because all of the Me Too stories have felt very distant, or if they've been close, they've been shared with me one-on-one. I felt really, I don't know if you guys felt this, but I felt really shaken by this. Like I've met Stephen M. Cohen. He doesn't know me, but that's fine. And I know this woman and it felt like just so close. Um, And the fact that she like her full name is out there and she's like, this is my story. This is what happened to me. It just, it was like really, um, I don't know, like I feel the heat rising within me even as I'm talking about it. Yeah. I mean, I agree, meaning personally recognizing a name in a story about this is was a first for me. Um, And that was very that that did bring me up short when I saw it. Um, I want to say, you know, kudos to the Jewish week um, for breaking the story and, and for the forward for covering it extensively. And, you know, nobody there was no effort to contextualize in a way that minimized Um, and I'm not sure that would have been true two years ago. And it felt like for all that this was in a Jewish publication and understood the relevance to a Jewish audience, I didn't think that the framing or the gravity with which this was handled was any different than you would have seen in a story about a national figure in the New York Times. And so that felt important and valuable to me um, and a way in which I'm glad that, that a Jewish story isn't being handled differently. But mm-hmm. in one thing that was really interesting to me. So um, in, in looking in, in looking at this and related stories, I came across an older story in the Jewish week from actually from December of last year um, called female rabbis speak out about pervasive harassment. Um, mm-hmm. And it made me reflect on, the specific nature of the power dynamics um, in communal settings, because a rabbi is in a weird position where where they are the leadership and yet they are employed by the people they are leading. And it creates this very muddy power dynamic of who do you go to? Who's the superior? Who has, wh- what is the what is the leverage anyone holds over anyone else? And it was a very jarring article for me as somebody who doesn't have the privilege of being in uh, communities with female clergy very much um, to see what seemed like the universality of female rabbis talking about harassment, not just by, you know, superiors or teachers or whatever it is, but by congregants. And the notion of treating your rabbi that way felt sort of twilight zoney to me 
And it was sort of shocking to me, I guess I was being naive about this, but it was sort of shocking to me to see rabbi after rabbi after rabbi sharing very similar testimony about experiences they've had with congregants, um, you know, making making harassing comments or, or, you know, touching inappropriately or things of that nature. It was really, sh- that was really shocking to me um, in a way that, you know, uh, academic abuses position with grad student did not feel like a new story, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, female rabbis testified of their abuse at the hands of congregants felt like very new to me. Yeah. Also in that article um, was the information that if you are a rabbi, you cannot sue your congregation for sexual harassment. Um, so basically like a couple of, you, I think you can't sue, like you can't sue even a specific person. Um, it's just not, there's a, there's a legal loophole that makes that impossible. Well, I did some um, Googling around about that and I found at least one law review article that contends that that isn't true, but that the article existed to debunk a notion that the ministerial exception precludes sexual harassment uh, litigation. So I think you got to find a lawyer willing to make the case. Um, Right. But those informal power dynamics of who's the employer here and who's in the leadership position here probably make it functionally impossible in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like especially in the rabbi situation, that is ultimately a misogyny thing um, and that it's a lot of I mean, I'm sure it was coming from some women in some cases, but I do feel like, um, you know, the reason it was an article about women rabbis who have been sexually harassed and not just rabbis who have been sexually harassed is because I think it happens, you know, vastly disproportionately to women um, from men. And uh, that there, there obviously is a power dynamic there, but I think it is, it does come down on that, in that situation much more on gender than some of the other situations that we've talked about, which are, a little more complicated, I feel like. It makes me think, actually, of our Rabbis and Rebbitsons episode when our guest rabbi, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting her name, um, commented about the... Aviva. Yeah, that um, that Rabbi Aviva was commenting on the, the, the constant commentary she gets on her choice of clothing. Um, right, yeah. And just, you know, the time that a congregant told her, the rabbi has a very pretty face, but she should dress like such and such and you know that that was shocking enough to me at the time some of the quotes in this article um you know go way further way further yeah all right well i just want to finish up by asking like what if like how how do we deal with this like what actually should be consequences around these things and i recognize that we're really talking about a spectrum and so there isn't going to be like one size fits all um but i i do feel like that conversation is important because um this is i don't know i just feel like we need to have a a reaction that's something we need to be able to have a reaction that's something other than like excommunication um Although in some cases, obviously, I'm fine with excommunication. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, I think it's it's much harder with something that isn't like 
an obviously horrific action. My my thoughts went immediately to, wow, how many donor development dollars have gone to whatever Stephen M. Cohen decided was the key to Jewish continuity? And, mm-hmm. and how can we... Um, how how can we like take a break and like really think and try to redirect or try to compensate for um i don't know i know this is more on the feminist critique of his research and less on his behavior towards his graduate students but i just immediately went towards like all right let's have like the feminist reckoning of Jewish institutions now too, <laughs> you know, like, but we're done. Let's go. <laughs> I am totally ready. <laughs> you know, okay. I, I'm going to like go out on my limb here. I am okay with what I think is probably an overcorrection in a lot of these cases. Um, so for instance, one of the like, middle of the spectrum things that there's a lot of debate about is the um, the push for Al Franken to have resigned. Um, Al Franken is one of those cases that people seem not quite ready to embrace the punishment. Um, and, you know, because things that he did were construed in some cases as jokes or I don't know. And I don't feel the need to litigate Al Franken personally. But when that happened, people were like, is this really worthy of, and I was like, I'm okay with not litigating that. I'm okay with some overcorrection here because the yeah. balance is, has been historically far too far in the other direction. And I'm actually going to steal this thought, I think, from Ezra Klein of Vox. It's time for the burden of fear to shift to the other side. Meaning women have borne the burden of fear of these interactions 100% of the time for so long that I am okay with men being afraid of an overcorrection regarding their behavior. I think that that is a probably on balance a good thing for how this behavior is going to shake out. I will also say that I am not totally unsympathetic to the conversation about due process, right? Like, is the accusation sufficient for the consequences to come down? What's the due process? And I think that that's a totally valid conversation to have, say, when you're talking about the quasi-judicial structure of sexual assault hearings on college campuses. But when it comes to social professional consequences, nobody has a constitutional right to be the CEO of Pixar. Nobody has a constitutional right to run CBS, right? Like, due process is not... Or to be the rabbi of a synagogue. Or to be the rabbi of a synagogue, or to be a prominent academic in an influential position. These are not things for which we have due process. Nobody's being deprived of their life or liberty here. Um, And the appropriation of that legal language and the innocent until proven guilty standard for social consequences and professional consequences seems really misplaced to me. Um, And I'm, I'm fine with shifting the balance admittedly too far so that we can correct reasonably. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think that in general, like losing your job is terrible. It feels really terrible. 
but like almost everybody f- to whom this is happening is somebody who's like pretty far advanced in their career and they should be able to you know ride it out for a couple of years maybe like figure out some side hustle until they can like you know f- figure out how they're going to either atone or just like you know zag and take up some totally different thing like that those are all very very possible um and yeah i mean it sucks to lose your job but many 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 adults have experienced it and survived so yeah i i'm with zahava here i do think that like the challenge is in a lot of cases that like it's people that we know who have you know just because the jewish world is small um we may know victims and we may know perpetrators um and it's hard to it is it is just difficult to square being like oh but this person was always great when i was hanging out with them never did anything inappropriate with the things that you might read in the newspaper and i think that like both could be true. <laughs> Somebody might have been completely uh, appropriate and distinguished with you and completely not those things with someone else. In fact, like, that's just how most people live their lives. It's like one way with some people, another way with other people. It's not unusual. And so it's it's possible for both to be true. You may have like really enjoyed and gotten a lot out of your time with them. You may have really learned things from them. But that doesn't mean that the thing that they did didn't happen. I, I feel like one thing that I would like the Jewish community to really like spend some time on is like, okay, well, how are we going to figure out how we can, in some cases, do things like square the positive things that we've learned from someone with the consequences of what happened to them. And and like, you know, we had a whole segment on Karlbach. Like this is something that people have been asking for for a really long time and it still has really not been done. Um and I think we could this could be a time when we like have a real conversation about like what does it mean <laughs> to learn and grow from a person who maybe is like not a great person on the the personal um struggle if when you know somebody in one part of their life and then find out about the horrible things that they've done to other people i actually really appreciated jane eisner's um my personal and professional reckoning with stephen cohen's me too movement i felt she without talking too much about herself she explained the struggle she came out on this is horrible and I have to find a way to understand my relationship with him now knowing this about him um and I just it 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 really spoke to some like some actual like fear that I have like oh that sounds so hard to try to like square this new image of a person um so highly recommend her piece yeah yeah i thought it was really fantastic all right should we move on to our second segment Mm -hmm. yeah so 
For our second segment, we are talking about Spike Lee's new film, Black Klansman. The film, which was based on a true story, follows black police officer Ron Stallworth in Colorado Springs, Colorado, in 1979, as he tricked the local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan into thinking he was a member. He spoke on the phone, and when he needed to go in person, he sent in a white police officer. In the film, but not in the real-life story, the white officer that Stallworth sent in in his place was a Jewish man, played by Adam Driver. Um, so, we all saw the film, mostly on Tamar, you were the one who told me how Jewish it was. Um, were you surprised by that? Did you know that going into the film? No, I didn't really know anything um, about the film going in, other than, like, the most, you know the very first sentence basically like black man infiltrates the clan which is basically the title of the movie so it wasn't like i really had very little to go on um and yeah i was really really shocked at um how much it really made me think about jewish identity which was not i just because i didn't know anything about it i did not expect that certainly um and and how much it really i felt like did a good job of kind of teasing out some of the some of the things that I have been thinking about a lot around like what does it mean to be white and Jewish and care about racism and um you know how does that how how can that really um play out in your life um yeah so and and I have to say that like I really really liked the movie but I found it to be incredibly intense. Um the first half of the movie is like a little bit funnier and more slapsticky, not slapstick, but it's more kind of wry humor um and I laughed a little bit. Um but the last third or a half of the of the movie is like it's, it's really intense and I really I felt like my stomach hurt afterwards cuz I was like just feeling feeling tense about the the last hour so yeah it's it's a lot I'm really curious what what you all thought of it so I went to see this movie in like a three-quarters empty theater at 4 30 in the afternoon on a weekday um and everyone in the audience was I believe I believe everyone in the audience was white and everyone but me seemed to be over 50. So I don't I don't know if this is the typical um, I don't know if this is the typical co-viewing experience for for Black Klansmen. I'll also um, confess up front that I have never seen another Spike Lee movie, um, which I understand that not having seen Do the Right Thing is like a, a major gap in my cinematic education. I'll rectify. But um, Something about the previews for Spike Lee movies never appeal to me for whatever reason. Something about the colors mm-hmm. and the tone. And like you said, the, the tone is like funny in a way that you feel almost bad about finding it funny in the first part. Mm-hmm. And then the tone doesn't shift really, but it becomes much more sour. Um, yeah. So, you know, as, um, you know, David Duke former Grand Wizard of the KKK is a character in the film. He shows up more prominently as a character in the second half. The, the racist rhetoric um, seem s- suddenly gets a little less filtered and a, a little more scary, but the colors are the same and the tone is the same and the vibe is the same. And that disjunction makes you feel like you're, you're through the looking glass in a very frightening place. Um, 
and and that was very odd. Um, but the Jewishness was really interesting, and the fact that this is based on a true story, but that the Jewish element is totally introduced into the story is really interesting. Um, right. Yeah. So, you know, we had a lengthy conversation um, when we talked about um, Tamika Mallory and the issues of uh, Louis Farrakhan Alliance and, and uh, anti-Semitism uh, on the modern left. And we had this long conversation and in which, um, I, you know, I talked about feeling like Jewishness wasn't an identity that the left and anti-racist groups were recognizing. Um, and that notion that like Jews in America are in a position of power and therefore they can't really be on the receiving end of discrimination in any meaningful way. It seems to be many people's uh, gut instinct about this. And in a way it felt weirdly validating that Spike Lee mm -hmm. chose to do this in this movie, especially because Spike Lee himself has his own history of being accused of anti-Semitism with um, some very uh, stereotypical Jewish characters in, in the movie Mo' Better Blues. Um, and so th the notion that, uh, uh, that uh, a prominent black artist wanted to include Jewishness in this story felt sort of weirdly validating. But at the same time, and I think this is a very good thing, the movie does not place anti-Semitism and anti-black racism on the same plane of danger, right? Because right. the white Jewish cop is in a position to pass and the black cop right. is not. Right. Um, and there's a, an article in, in the Jewish Week called Black Klansman Recalls the Possibility Then and Now of a Black Jewish Alliance by Mark Dolinger that points out that in the stories we're often told about Jewish involvement in, in the civil rights movement, for, for instance, that the Jews are often given perhaps too prominent a role in the stories that Jews tell about that and that this movie uh, gets the balance right of placing... Um, the, the black officer at the center of the story, but understanding the role that the Jewish officer plays both in his activism and also in his, his reckoning with the anti-Semitism that the Klan also has. Um, so that was a very interesting dynamic to me. Yeah, I walked away from this film thinking, um, wow, I'm so glad that Adam Driver, if this if this were a buddy cop film, Adam Driver was like definitely the second. He the the Ron Stallworth character initiates the investigation. He leads the investigation, even though he's a rookie cop. He, you know, he saves the day in a lot of ways um, at the end. And Adam Driver is clearly going on actually a personal journey, which I found very compelling, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about. But he's not the um, the savior, um, and that felt appropriate and good. Um, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about yeah, that I'll personal journey because there's this there's this moment not that late in the film. I think this doesn't count as a spoiler. Where um, Ron Stallworth, the black officer at the center of the movie, says to him. How come you're not more on board with this? Why don't you? Why aren't you acting like you're like you have skin in the game? You know the clan hates Jews too, um, and he has this moment of reckoning. Like, yeah, I'm Jewish, but I wasn't raised to be Jewish. I was always just another white kid, and now I'm thinking about Jewishness all the time. All the time. And so that was really 
an, a very interesting moment in the film. How did that strike you guys? I mean, I think that it is this, this fa- we're in this fascinating moment right now where I feel like there is like a conversation about anti-Semitism that is really different from the conversation about anti-Semitism that's happened like for my whole life up until now. Um, and so, and, and I feel, I mean, we, we talked about anti-Semitism probably three years ago at this point. And I was basically like, anti-Semitism is not a real problem in the United States. Like, we need to get off our high horses here and, like, actually deal with real problems. And then things change. I mean, I think that that was, I don't think I was super wrong at that moment. But it's clearly a situation now where, like, that was... That was at best naive, um, and and there is a lot of open anti-Semitism and a lot of coded anti-Semitism in like pretty shocking places, uh, or shocking to me, anyways. Now, um, and so it does feel like oh, even if you think that being Jewish is not really a big deal or you don't think about it at all suddenly when you're seeing anti-semitism all over the place it's pretty hard to not think about judaism then um and you know i i I, even though i am somebody who is generally seen as extremely jewish including hosting a jewish podcast um i i did feel like yeah i feel more i feel weirdly less religious and more Jewish in the last couple of years because um, of what's been going on politically. So it, it hit me in a very specific place. Yeah. But Mimi, you brought it up. So I'm curious what your experience of it was. Yeah. um, So I think there are a few moments that stand out in the film. The first Tamara, as you said, uh, sorry, Zahava, as you said, when Adam Driver said, I, his character says, I, I'm thinking about, Judaism all the time now. Um, the second moment that really stood out, and I don't know what your reaction to this was, but at one point, um, the Adam Driver character is forced to take a lie detector test, and the guy giving him the test talks about the Holocaust, and Adam Driver, playing a, an anti-Semite white supremacist, goes on this rant about the Holocaust and how it didn't go far enough, how it was a beautiful thing. And how could you think that the Holocaust didn't exist? This was amazing. Um, And even now thinking about it, I was just like, I I was bawling during that. It was so like his, because his anger was so real and his words were clearly like so hate-filled, but you could tell that he was throwing those words right at the Klansmen across from him, even though the the words themselves were against Jews. Um, I, I found that really moving and powerful. Um, and then there are the pieces at the end of the film, which I don't know how much we want to talk about it, but... Um, well, I think know. we can say that regardless of, of what's what's in the film, that the film is was intentionally released to coincide with the first anniversary of Charlottesville. Um Right. And that the 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 echoes with our modern moment are not downplayed in this movie, um, even though it's set in the seventies. Um, and you know, so so that is definitely supposed to be something on your mind as you're as you're watching the movie. The other, like the only other Jewish person who's on the screen, 
is Steve Mnuchin, who's standing behind Donald Trump when he talks about um, how there's evil on both sides. And and fine people on both sides. Fine, fine people, right, evil and fine people on both sides. Um, coming from this extremely, like, emotional, triggering experience of the film, I was just like, who is this guy? Like, what are you doing? How are you doing this? Um, yeah. That's, that hit me hard. That, that scene... Um when they're they're de- where one one white supremacist is talking is espousing Holocaust denial, and then one faux white supremacist is saying, "No, the Holocaust was fantastic and beautiful." That that is a very visceral thing. Um, it made me think actually quite a lot about. Um, so during the the brief moment, which people who spend time on Twitter will remember, when there was a, a trend for anti-Semites to quote unquote unmask. Jews on Twitter by putting three parentheses around their names um, to identify them as secret Jews. So even if they are in no way secret, um, there was a piece written by Jeffrey Goldberg, who's the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, um, about what it's like to be a Jewish journalist online and how the theme of of anti-Semites on Twitter seems to be the Holocaust never happened, but it was awesome. (laughs) Um, Which is funny except it's really not um and and you know coming home i actually i texted a friend to ask if i could share this story where uh, a friend of mine um during the um the the um in may uh during the the horrible um violence along the israeli border with gaza um, there was a lot of discussion on twitter about this conflict and um gene denby who's an npr journalist and who um, host the Code Switch podcast and writes a lot about race issues, tweeted a fairly normal Twitter thing um, saying, um, who are some great Palestinians on Twitter that I should follow to get a perspective on the conflict? That's not verbatim, but something of that nature. This Jewish friend of mine, who is very involved in race and social justice issues um, and who follows Gene Denby from that perspective, respo- debated for a few minutes and then responded along the lines of, this is a really great idea. I look forward to seeing the suggestions you get. I hope you're also following some Israelis for balance or something very close to that. Um, Whether you think that that is a valuable thing to have done for balance or not, the immediate response was a wave of virulent anti-Semitism. She was getting direct messages with her personal face, like her Twitter photo, photoshopped into crematorium ovens. Um, and the notion that you would even say out loud the word Israel meant that she got a torrent of anti-Semitism online in really frightening ways. Um, and that is a pretty anodyne way of associating yourself with Judaism in the world. And the notion that this came in the context of a reporter who covers racism calls attention to something happening to Palestinians, clearly the proper response is to recognize that Jews should be burned in ovens. You have to wonder, where did we go wrong in this exchange? What just happened? Um, And the other Twitter thing it made me think of um, is, so as I said, this movie was... was, um, 
uh, time to correspond with the with the one year anniversary of of the Charlottesville protest and the death of Heather Hare. Um, and the morning after Charlottesville, there was a uh, a Twitter thread from um, someone named Justin Cohen, who is a figure in the education policy world, which is why I know him. But he has also um, set himself up essentially as white person talks to other white people about how to be better allies to people of color. Um, he also happens to be Jewish, but the role that he stakes out is much more as a white person in this conversation. And he put up a thread that said, okay, hey, white people, the Monday after Charlottesville, here's how to be good allies to the people of color in your life and in your office. When you show up, don't ask every black person you know to comment on this protest. Don't ask them how they feel about it. Let them feel how they feel. Don't appoint them representatives of their race, etc. And there was a, a lengthy thread about this. And I had no problem with the content of the thread, but it made me so angry. And I had no problem with the content of the thread. What made me angry is that as a Jew, he shows up and says, I'm a white person. This was not about me. Hey, white people, this wasn't about you. Here's how you should relate to people of color. When you have people marching through the streets carrying fire, yelling, Jews will not replace us, and us in that sentence is white people, who are you in this moment? And who are you abandoning in this moment by deciding that you are only going to be a white person? And I understand that I get to walk through the world with white privilege 98% of the time. I do not think that when Nazis are walking through the streets yelling Jews will not replace us is one of those times. It made me really angry. And watching this movie, watching this movie in which the white cop who infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan happens to be Jewish brought back that like moment on Monday morning where I had this moment of sometimes you don't get to be a white person and sometimes you can remember that. Well, I guess I feel like you get to be a white person. You're just also Jewish <laughs> and those things are, it, it's not, you only get to be one. Um, right. I mean, Adam driver was learning about his own intersectionality. He had never thought about it, that character. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this, what I was really thinking about while I was watching this was like how much Adam Driver was able to be in that room and not, um, not, not be harmed um, around these people because of the color of his skin. But that didn't mean that like if they knew the truth about him, he would be safe. Um, but they couldn't see... Um, although one of them did seriously suspect that he was Jewish. So, so they were, they were willing to go with it. Um, and I, I don't know, it made me think a lot about how like, yeah, I, I do a lot of kind of proclaiming my Jewishness. Um, and part of that is because like, I don't really want to be in a situation with where somebody like finds out later on and then maybe is different or maybe says something inappropriate. Like I'd rather know right away, but a lot of people that, I mean, that's just, that just isn't how they live their lives. Um, and you know, people don't want to, which is also a very reasonable response. Um, I also just want to call out uh, the part of the movie that I found 
that I, I think about the most is there's um, a part where it goes back and forth between two scenes and one is the members of the KKK watching, oh my gosh, what is the name of that film? Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation, um, which is a famous, extremely racist film that is really responsible for like a lot of the success of the KKK um, in the 20th and 21st century. And so that's one thing that you're watching. And then it's going back and forth between that and Harry Belafonte, who is playing a character, telling the story of a lynching that he saw as a child and it, it's a it's a real lynching um that he's telling the story of and yeah, and he's telling it to at the black student union and that the story is so graphic um and horrifying and it really reminded me of the holocaust narratives that my classmates and i listened to when we were actually shockingly young children and of course you know into high school and college it felt really similar to me and you know the dichotomy of of the two stories um was really stark and i i thought there was something really profound in seeing like these are two like founding narratives that people use for their identities um and one is a story a true story of you know of an atrocity and the other is like a fictional story of um, of an atrocity that is cheered for. And in a way, I feel like that gets at the root of, of the issue. Um, you know, like what is the fundamental narrative that we tell ourselves um, and how, how, how can we make it so that w- one's own identity isn't dependent on treating somebody else like you know, less than human. Uh, I just, I feel like we should say something about the uh, two female characters in the film. The one thing that I said when I said I thought we should talk about this movie was that it doesn't really have any, it doesn't have any uh, Jewish women in it and it doesn't have that much to say about women at all. But I'm curious if you, if either of you had any kind of takeaways from the so the, the two main female characters are um, Ron Stallworth has a uh, kind of a girlfriend who is uh, the, <laughs> I almost just said the uh, president of the Hillel, but that's not, <laughs> not her role. <laughs> She's the, the president of the Black Student Union. Um, and uh, one of the members of the Klan has a wife who is like really terrifyingly evil um, in her own extremely enthusiastic way. And so those are the two, the two women characters. I think they're basically the only two women in the whole film who have any lines. Um, So what did you, did you think there was anything interesting to say about uh, women's roles in these conversations or in these thoughts? Well, I thought it was interesting how um, the president of the Black Student Union becomes a guide for Ron Stallworth in his um, in his journey of understanding his own blackness, um, black liberation. She she educates him through the film, um, and she. Uh, I, you know, I, I think actually that both she and Connie, 
I think is the white woman's name. Um, they are, they are these like sort of the epitome of like the committed woman, like that they're, they, they both like push action, um, through their commitment, one for justice and one for like carnage. Um, and so in some ways they're both like driving forces for the men who surround them. Yeah. I want to say that. So, um, the Patrice, who's the president of the black student union is played by Laura Harrier. And she's, I think, fantastic in the movie. Um, I think in general, yeah, the, so the acting is very good. And, and, um, I, I really appreciated the performances. John David Washington as the main character, Ron Stallworth, who, uh, who is, uh, the son of another famous actor, Washington. Um, so, but, sh- so Patrice's character, I think she's important less as a, a woman um, and more as a political ideology. Um, If anything, there's a sort of subverting of gender stereotypes where um, the male character uh, wants to sort of work within the system and get along, but make what change he can. And, um, and that the, the Patrice, who's the female activist is very much a like blow up the system. There's no such thing as resistance inside. Um, And the movie plays out in a way as a debate between them. Um, And I think that it's an open question who is quote unquote right um, if either of them sort of wins out. But I think she's a a powerful personality um, and that she, to me, she embodies that debate without becoming sort of a, without, without just sort of becoming a didactic presence. So I appreciated that balance in the writing. I'll also say I haven't done any research into this, but my first reaction at, in the credits when seeing who the screenwriters were was that the first two names sounded like two Jews to me. Um, uh, Charlie Wachtel right. and David Rabinowitz um, were two of the screenwriters. Um, and I thought it was probably not incidental um, that the Jewish storyline was handled with a deafness and, and interest by what I presume are, are Jewish screenwriters. Yeah. All right. Well, on that extremely light note, should we head to our endorsements? Yeah. Mimi, are you ready to endorse? I am. Um, So I have uh, done a little bit of exploring in the world of Elul projects um, for this Hebrew month of Elul leading up to the high holidays. Um, And I think... I have lots of reflections that I am not done with because Elul is not over. Um, but I have been reading, there's an email list called Jewels of Elul, um, which I highly suggest, different writers every day. Um, there is uh, a rabbi who I follow who sends out daily um, writing prompts that I've been working on doing. and. Actually, my favorite, but also the simplest Elul project that I've been um, journeying on is every day of Elul, I give something away. Um, So it's been a great decluttering project. Um, But the thing that I am really most proud of and actually want to endorse for the month of Elul is um, is talking with your friends about the high, ho- the high holiday services um, 
And if you, if this is up your alley, like pulling out a machzor and looking at things that you probably really only get to see once a year. Um, so I was with some good friends earlier this week and we we're talking about like, oh, there's so many times when you just like, you go through all of these sins and you're beating your chest and it gets to feel really repetitive. Um, and we focused particularly on the Ashamnu, Bagadnu, the like um, each letter of the alphabet. And I, um, I have a hard time with it, mostly because we do it so often during the Yom Kippur service and because it's like... I feel like I haven't committed all of these sins, not to like toot my own horn, but I just haven't done all of those. I've done plenty of other ones. Um, but I read some really great commentary, and I'll try to find an online version of it. Um, but this is in the Koran um, Machsor, so everything is from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Um, and there were three things that I really liked about what he says. Um, the first is that Initially on Yom Kippur, or traditionally, the confession is a very simple one. Please, God, I have sinned, I have done wrong, I have rebelled before you. Um, but then our liturgy moves from the individual to the universal. Um, and that's not just because we're supposed to be thinking about the, the sins that we have committed as a people, but also that it sort of opens up space for us to not feel ashamed. We're not supposed to like shout out the sins that we've committed, but rather we go through a list. Everybody can find something on that list that they have committed and feel like they have said their piece. Um, and he also talks about um, the beating of your breast, that um, the custom to beat your breast lightly at each mentioned sin is actually in the spirit of Jeremiah, who said, after I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. And I really liked that idea that there are these two actions that we're doing when we say, Ashamnu Bagadnu, we are repenting, but we're also like, there's some sort of internal conflict that we are acting out by beating our breast. Um, and it's this understanding, I feel, that, yeah, we are the sort of people who are capable of doing wrong, and that's really hard to internalize. Um, so I'll try to find a way to share with everybody what I read from Jonathan Sachs, but highly endorse, like, take on a big project for Elul, especially if it gears you up for the high holidays. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Have you, um, did you see that there is an al that was written specifically for the Me Too movement? I have. Um, I am going to be talking about that with friends next week. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. It's, it's pretty good. All right. Zahava, what about you? So first I want to make a lighthearted quick mini endorsement and then my real endorsement. So um, I like I know Mimi because I could see it on her bookshelf before and I don't know if you have it tomorrow also but I have the Zahav cookbook which is mm -hmm. um, an Israeli cookbook written by Philly chef Michael Solomonov and I happened to uh, glance at the back earlier this week and I just want to endorse the fact that there is a blurb on the back from Questlove um, just <laughs> discovered that love that fact so just wanted to share um, but my real endorsement, um, so I am in a Facebook group where somebody actually earlier today asked about um, 
English language poetry that is high holidays relevant. And it made me think about some poems that I have read. Um, and this also particularly felt valuable in response to some of the really uh, difficult themes we've discussed today. Um, so Rabbi David Ebner, who um, is a teacher and I think Rosh Yeshiva at um, the Young Men's Yeshiva in Jerusalem, Eretz Atzvi, um, also writes and publishes poetry. Um, I'm not going to wholeheartedly endorse his poems because I think that some of them are better than others. Um, I, I do want to endorse the poem Yizkor, which is about a different kind of Jewish continuity. Um, he describes discovering this um, picture of this group of ants, great ants who uh, were killed in the Holocaust and not knowing their names and how he sort of places them and himself in, in the theme of Jewish continuity. Um, and um, I won't read it out loud because there's a chunk of it that's in Yiddish and I'll just embarrass myself and my forebears. Um, but I also um, want to say, so there is a poem, the title poem of, of the book in which these poems appear, The Library of Everything. It's called The Library of Everything, Poems and Torah Commentaries. And the title poem, The Library of Everything. Um, so I happen not to love every part of this poem, but I do like the ending. So the premise of the poem is um, that in the afterlife, there is a library of everything where you can look up everything that's happened um, and read it and experience it. And the last two paragraphs um, go like this. For my part, I will head for history slash world slash 20th century. I want to hear the faces to hear the voice. I want to see the faces to hear the voices, especially the sound of teaspoons at Vansay. I want to hear the shots and the condemned who shout long live Stalin in Lubyanka. I want to inhale the smell of the executioner's cigarette in his five minute break at Babi Yar. If these things happened, if this was the world I lived in, I will go on to Judaism slash Hasidut slash Breslov and retrieve the 1811 file of Shabbat Nachamu in Uman and hear Rabbi Nachman raise his voice to the future. Givald Yidin, do not despair and listen to him for eternity. And I just appreciated being left there. Um, in general, Rabbi Abner's poetry is, is interesting, and he um, follows each poem with an explanatory section, like an excursus on um, the Jewish themes or Torah sources that he was drawing on and writing the poem, which is really interesting. Um, so it's cool to check out. But um, So the poems Yisker and the Library of Everything. Those are both great. Will you? Um, are there links to them online, or do you need to have the book to get them? Um, you can... Uh, access both of those poems i believe in the amazon look inside version of the book so we'll link to the amazon yeah. page for it and you can uh, go inside and search for those poems great um so i have uh, a request and an endorsement so the request is i basically hate davening now <laughs> which is maybe always been true but now it's like i really really like when I get to show I have to force myself to daven and basically it only really happens if I'm leading davening so that seems bad um so if you are a person who has like not really been into davening and has figured out a way to get into it or to like at minimum not hate it um I would love to hear your secrets or what worked for you or why you think it changed because I am like really struggling with it and I don't 
like feeling this way. I will say the one thing about davening that I like now is um, I say the like the full Shema with my daughter every night before bed, um, and I really like doing that. And we, I like singing Adon Alam with her before bed too. Um, and I also say Shema with her in the morning on the way to school like that but that leads to a like some total of like three and a half minutes of davening for me every day which I feel like might be on the low side um so anyways a few of thoughts I'm interested um my endorsement has nothing to do with davening since I don't like davening um it is uh the movie uh inside job or inside man um which is a Spike Lee movie from like 10 years ago or so um starring Denzel Denzel Washington and Jodie Foster um and uh it's a heist movie um and it also has some surprise Jewish content um almost all the way at the end you have to really wait for it um but it's it's a great movie like totally independent of the Jewish content um but I think you can really see some of the kind of seeds of Black Klansmen um, in that movie. Um, and I, I mean, I have seen do the right thing and you know, whatever it's fine. But I think, um, inside man is like a great movie. Um, and, and it's, it's intense, but it's not, I think it's less of an emotional journey than black Klansman. So if you're looking for something that's like, not going to give you quite those feelings but is still like a good film that has interesting things to say um about race um and capitalism uh you should totally um watch that movie because it's really excellent and also like it's i love that movie i've seen it a bunch of times and so like there's even some of the same music cues in inside man um as in black Klansman. so i do feel like they are really connected cool um yeah yeah it's a it's a good one definitely check it out um all right so thank you so much for listening we would love it if you could leave a review for us because it helps other people find the show or you could email us and tell us what you thought of the show um you can uh find us on our website jpmedia.co you can choose talking and chill from the list of podcasts that's where you can leave uh, a comment you can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, um, which is a really great way to support us and make sure that we can come back every month and bring you more episodes. Thank you so much, Zahava. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Mimi. Talk to you later. See you next month. <laughs>